Well, today we have a really short psalm, um, but in this really short psalm, Psalm 131, we hear the words of a man who has found the only way to true rest and peace. Here is a man who is not noisy on the inside. Do you know that experience? Do you, do you know that when you get noisy and it's just loud on your inside? Here's a man who is not churning. If you're anything like me, my insides sometimes churn, and I just feel like I'm on edge. And anything can kind of push me over the edge. He's not churning. He's not on edge. He's not depressed. He's not um, despairing. He's not uh, regretting. He's not overwhelmed. He's not arrogant. He's not driven by a fear of failure that keeps him having to perform and to succeed and produce. He's at peace. And if there's ever a psalm, I think that in the, on the one hand gives us what we long for, and then on the same hand kind of opposes us directly, it's, it's this psalm. So first, I think it gives us what we long for because I think all of us, if we thought about it, we long for a sense of true peace and true rest. We long for the noisiness, the churning, the on-edgeness that we experience to be brought to a calmness. But this psalm also, I think, opposes us directly in some ways. And uh, this is how I was thinking about it. I did campus ministry for eight years before coming back to Trinity uh, two months ago. And I want you to imagine going to visit a university. Maybe you're a student and you're thinking about going to this university. Maybe you're a parent taking your kids on the university tour. Maybe you're a friend and you're going along with, 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 a, with another family friend to visit some university. And the, professor of the, uni- the president of the university gets up and says in his opening speech about what you can expect at this university, um, at this university, we don't aspire to high things. We, uh, we don't want to encourage our students to lift their eyes too high. We don't want them to occupy themselves with things that are too big for them or beyond their ability to understand. Would you want to go there? I mean, it, it, just to be frank, like, it kind of sounds like a school for losers. Like, like, who wants to go to that university? And yet the person who's writing this is no loser, Like, David is not the person who couldn't hack it and just had to give up. David is the person, I mean, in one sense, you could say he's an ancient Near Eastern success story. He's a small-town kid who went up and fought against the giant, who won, who became the king of Israel. I mean, he had so much success. He rose to the top, and yet here he tells us the only true place where lasting rest and peace can come from. In a sense, he is the success story that can look all of us in the eye and say, real peace and rest is never going to come from you. Real rest is found in being a child of God. And what David means to do in this psalm, I think, is in a sense, take us by the hand. And so this morning, I want you to imagine that David is taking you by the hand wherever you feel stressed, anxious, worried, tired, frustrated, restless, and he's seeking to lead us into the cure for the restless life. And this cure for the restless life starts first by resisting, by resisting self-salvation. This is what David basically says, this is what I've not done. And then second, by receiving the cure. And this is what David says, 
I've learned, and this is what I want for you. So let's think about these. Uh, first, resisting, resisting self-salvation. Uh, David resists the temptation, basically, that he himself could be the answer to his own restlessness, that he could be the answer to his own noisy self. And to really understand what David is getting at here, we have to see the big picture of the story of the Bible. The Bible begins with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existing in perfect relationship, in joy, in love, in peace, and rest. And God creates the world that we might share that with him, that we might enjoy that. And so God creates humanity, and when humanity is placed in the Garden of Eden, they're placed there at rest at rest with God and at rest with one another. But we sinned. And in that sin, what happens is we lose that sense of peace and rest. And what, what comes is shame and guilt and brokenness. And this is what David knows about the human heart, and it's what he knows about his own heart. That when we feel shame and when we feel guilt and when we feel brokenness, what we do and what our first parents did, what Adam and Eve did, is they tried to cover it. We are restless and we try to cover our brokenness. And having turned from God, in a sense, we have no one else to look to but ourselves to save ourselves. And so there's a sense in which there's a constant pull on our lives to try and be our own gods and our own saviors. And this is what David is resisting. And I want you to think about this for a second. In a sense, this is what it means to be a sinner. This is the condition of being a sinner. Sometimes when we think about sin, I I remember with my college students when I was doing campus ministry, most people think about sin as bad things we do or breaking God's laws. But sin is also a condition. It is to be someone whose life is marked by failure think about that. The definition of sin is to miss the mark, which is another way of saying to be a failure. And if that is our condition, doesn't it make so much sense why so many of us and and our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and just, just people in the world in general, that there's this constant sense in which we're trying to cover that up and we're trying to achieve or control or get rid of that feeling. And this is what, in a sense, David is resisting. He's resisting trying to save himself. If you look at verse 1 of our text, he says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. This is one way that we can try and, in a sense, save ourselves. We exalt ourselves. The verb here, lifted up, it's, it's used with reference to both God and people in the Bible. And when it's used of God, it's, it's usually very good because God is exalted, God is lifted up. But when it's used of people, it speaks of our arrogance. There's this great picture in Isaiah chapter 3 where this word is used. Listen to this description. The Lord says, the women of Zion are haughty. It's the same word here. The women of Zion are lifted up. And listen to how they're then described walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Can you picture that? It's a picture of how someone carries themselves. And it's a picture of how someone does that to try to cover up 
the restlessness inside. So one way of doing that is flaunting, flaunting yourself in some way, your abilities, your beauty, your possessions, your knowledge, your wealth. And and that's the picture in Isaiah, right? They shake their hips and the jewels on their ankles are jangling and and they're doing it, making it clear so everyone around them can see what's happening. But David here is not just talking about outward actions. It'd be fairly easy to avoid doing that. But David says his heart is not like that. His heart is not going around exalting, raising it up. He goes on and he says, uh, verse 1, my eyes are not raised too high. Proverbs 30, 13, the writer uses the same exact phrase to talk about the arrogance that he desperately wants to avoid. And he says this, again, think about this picture. He says, there are those How lofty their eyes, same phrase as here, how lofty their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. And it's this picture, of course, right, of when your eyes are lifted up, how do you respond to everyone else around you? You look down on them. You give them the look of judgment. And think about that picture. And isn't that evident just all over the place where people or groups Have that gaze. And how easy is it to to posture ourselves in a way in which we exalt ourselves above others, we lift ourselves above others in some way. And uh, obviously you can see this uh, with people because of political views. And so conservatives and liberals alike can do this. And you can do it because of your knowledge. Uh, You can do it because of your morality. You can do it because you're not like those close-minded people. You lift your eyes. This is the sort of thing that cuts through every human heart. David says, I've resisted the temptation to exalt myself and assert myself above others. He goes on to say, verse 1, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Uh, When he says, I do not occupy myself, this verb here, um, it's a great verb to say in Hebrew. If you want to say it with me, halak, you got to get a little in there. And it's a great word for me because uh, with someone with rusty Hebrew, it occurs over a thousand times. So it's one of those things that you at least know that word when you're trying to read. You're like, I I remember that one. And it's a word that's used all over the place because it's, it's used often just to talk about your walk. Your walk, you're going here, you're going there. And that's why it's such a great word for this, and it's a great way to talk about life because this is what we're constantly doing. We are walking, we are halaking, we are going here and there and pursuing this and that. And David says there's a way in which we can walk and orient our lives in which they are just one after another grasping for greater and greater things. This is a person who probably has a tendency to stretch themselves too far to wear themselves too thin. He also talks here, he depicts a desire for greatness and a desire to to know marvelous things and wonderful things, in a sense to be consumed by it, and not for the sake of learning or so that you could learn something to serve, but in a sense that you could be the person that achieved it or that you understand it and you control it. You know it, which is in a way of trying to be like God. 
All of this, David says, I've resisted because this is not where rest comes from. You will never get to rest on the other side of any of these things. That's what David's saying. This psalm uh, reminds me of a theologian and a philosopher named Augustine. He was born 354 AD, died 430. And Augustine was a man who turned away from the Christianity of, of his youth and his mother because he found it to be intellectually inferior. And he, he pursued, you know, in a sense, this ladder, this ascending ladder of climbing uh, education. He, he traveled the road of ambition and success and achievement. He went from Carthage to Rome to the emperor's courts in Milan to become the teacher of rhetoric, which was this incredibly prestigious place. And when he gets there, he's still restless, and in one of his most famous quotes, in a book where he talks about his own conversion to Christianity, he says from his own lived experience, O oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This past week, I was listening to a talk, uh, and it referenced an article by this guy named uh, Frédéric uh, de Boer. Uh, DeBoer lives in Brooklyn, and he's, he's a writer, he's uh, a blogger, he's not a Christian, he's, he, he's an intellectual. Um, and in this blog post that he wrote a few years ago called You Can't Fake It, he comes to nearly the same conclusion as David and Augustine. And I just, I just want you to hear how he puts it. Listen to his words. Quote, Here's what I do know. We've got a political critique of the ways that notions of human worth are dictated by traditional inequalities of race and sex and class and a set of political concepts like self-care that are designed to fight the negative effects of that. We've got a self-help culture that constantly counsels that everyone is a ray of brilliant and unique light that alone can shine the way through a dark world. We've got an increasingly woke world of marketing and goods that sells its products by selling you to yourself. A gym I passed by sometimes used to have a sign that said, join the body acceptance movement, neglecting the fact that if we all accepted our bodies, there would be no such thing as a gym. We've got a medical industry busily developing all manner of powerful drugs to manage all of this anxiety and insecurities and feelings of inadequacy. We've got our social media tools and craft to perfect and share an idealized vision of ourselves, curated and managed to the millimeter so that we can present exactly what we want to present and put our best foot forward with digital precision. And none of it works. I've known people in my life who were the most outwardly secure and confident, who never betrayed a hint of doubt or guilt or remorse, who projected cool at all times, who were quite popular, who received plaudits and positive affirmations from others at all times, who were academically and professionally successful, who had money and respect, who cultivated the kinds of micro-celebrity that are common to contemporary life, and yet the flow of life revealed that inside they hated themselves fully and completely with a bitterness that I can't imagine enduring at any time, let alone all the time. None of that stuff mattered. None of it could get at the core self-hatred within. They could never fool themselves. And well, I wonder, is this the human condition? We can't 
be our own gods. We can't save ourselves. I think it'd be really helpful for us to think for a moment right now, for each of us, where do I do that? Do you know your self-salvation products, projects? Can you identify them? This would be a really good conversation to have this week, and I would encourage you to do it. Call up somebody from this church. Call up a friend. Talk with, with a friend here talk around the dinner table. This would be a great conversation, great dinner table conversation. Maybe start with yourself. Here's where I see that I do this. Here's where I am trying to quiet my noisy insides by my efforts. Where do you see this? Can we identify our self-salvation tendencies? To receive the cure, we first have to stop trying to solve the problems ourselves. Let's think about receiving the cure. Uh, In verses 2 and 3, David gives the cure to the restless life. Verse 2, we get a picture of what it looks like to rest in God. And then verse 3, we get this exhortation to grow and experience this cure. So verse 2, the picture, and then verse 3, in a sense, how to get it. Verse 2, David says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, if you're someone who uh, has had a child or, or you've just been around babies, uh, my guess is this is a metaphor, an image that you can almost immediately connect with and understand, right? A weaned child is a child who is no longer nursing. The difference between a nursing infant and a weaned child is huge, right? The infant is, when the infant is with its mother, the infant is looking for food. And if food is not coming, the child is frantic and, and wailing and crying and restless and discontent. Uh, none of my kids took bottles. Uh, I, I don't know about others in here and the babies in, in, uh, in our church, but our kids didn't take bottles. And so that meant that if mom went out somewhere and I was left at home or grandparents were left at home and the child got hungry, there would be the screaming and the wailing. And you can't, I mean, just try, try to say to a child, to an infant, wait. Just wait. Mom will be back in like an hour. It's okay. Just wait. That doesn't work. Um, now, I want you to take yourself, and I want you to put yourself in the metaphor. What is your soul like? Have you learned how to calm and quiet your soul? Are you a nursing child, frantic, anxious, on edge? or a wean child? What do you do when what you think you need isn't coming? Does life have to work for you to have rest? Does God have to come through? Does he have to you know, answer your prayers? Does he have to come through on your timetable? Or do you have rest just sitting in his presence, just trusting him? Do you seek God because of what you hope he will give you? Or do you seek him in a sense just, just for him? David says, my soul is like a weaned child. My soul is quiet and content within me. 
I am at peace just sitting with mom, just sitting and resting in her. Do you have that with God? This is how you get it. Verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Or you could also translate this, wait for the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Waiting. This is how you grow up. This is how you receive the cure and you grow into it. This is how you get the picture of verse 2, I think. It's waiting on the Lord. It's hoping in him. And this is language that's all over the Bible. It's all over the Psalms. Waiting on his steadfast love. It's a relational waiting. It's continuing to trust God and hope in him in the midst of trials, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of stress. In a sense, waiting is the concrete opportunity in the moment to practice that salvation is of the Lord and it's not of me. Waiting is how we become like the weaned child. So it's those moments, they could be small, they could be big, but it's those moments every day, every week, every season in which our lives start to feel squeezed and we start to feel stressed and anxious and we trust in the Lord and we rest in his promises and we look to him rather than trying to control or fix or do something that we can do to get rid of it. In David's time, King Saul, the first Israelite king, would have been the counterexample to this. In, in uh, one of the pivotal moments in the narrative about Saul, 1 Samuel 13, Saul is on the brink of this extremely important battle against the Philistines. And all of his troops are there, and they're, in a sense, ready to go, and they're waiting They're waiting on Samuel the prophet to show up because Samuel's the one who has to do the sacrifice. Only he can do it. Samuel's going to come and offer the sacrifice and then they're going to go off into the battle. And he's waiting. And the text uses the same verb as in verse 3 here where it says, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come. And the people started scattering. And you imagine Saul in that moment, my army is leaving me. Samuel's not here. What am I supposed to do? And he goes and he does a sacrifice himself. In contrast to David, who lived this waiting on God numerous times throughout his life. If you know the story of David, you know that that he is the rightful king, that he is God's anointed, and yet he spends years of, of, of this early part of his life where he is hiding from Saul and where he is on the run. And there are multiple times, there are these two specific moments where he has the opportunity to kill Saul, to take control, to bring rest, in a sense, to his own life. And he doesn't do it. He entrusts himself to the Lord. But even more than David... Jesus Christ lived this psalm. I mean, think about it, right? Verse 1, Jesus is worthy of being exalted and lifted up. He is God in person in our world, and yet Paul writes of Jesus in Philippians 2, and he says that though he was equal with God, he didn't count that as something to be grasped onto and held onto and used for his own purposes. In a sense, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. 
he got beneath us. He went to the cross and he died. He died the death of a slave. He paid the price of our failure, the deep failure that we could never cover. And again, think, he waited on the Lord. Jesus is a wonderful picture of how this waiting on the Lord thing is not just this pure, pure passive, like twiddling your thumbs, just sitting back. His whole life, you can see, was a life ordered around trusting in God and trusting God's promises and, and hoping in the promised future that God had said would come. It was a life of prayer. It was a life of service. It was a life of mission. And Jesus waited on the Lord as he went to the cross as he went to the cross and entrusted himself to the Father, knowing that all that he held dear would be stripped away from him, he did this for us. In a few moments, we're going we're gonna to sing this song, It Is Well With My Soul. And it's a beautiful hymn that captures the rest and the peace that we can have because of the gospel. You may or may not be familiar with the story behind the hymn, but I think it's helpful for us as we, as we, as we sing this in a moment. The writer, uh, Horatio Spafford, he's actually from Chicago. He was a successful lawyer and a businessman, and he had you know, a great family. He had a, a wife named Anna, five children. He had a great life. In 1871, they lost their son to pneumonia. Their son died, and in the same year, much of his business was lost in the Great Chicago Fire. A couple years later, he and his family planned to go to Europe for some time away, and he stays back because of some business things that he has to do. So his wife Anna and the four kids go on this ship to cross the Atlantic. Into the journey, the ship collides with another ship. Within 12 minutes, it sinks. 226 people die. Anna alone survives. And he writes this hymn as he goes to meet Anna after all of this. And I want you to hear these words and think about this knowing the story. Verse 1, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Verse 2, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, right? Like he's saying, though my life has been assaulted by evil and though trials have flooded my life, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. Let the gospel control how I'm feeling and thinking and dealing with this hardship. Verse 3, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. This one's so interesting, right? Because in the midst of what probably must have felt like a living hell to lose all of your children, that he, in this moment, can praise the Lord because he has freedom and he has rest and he has seen concretely how the Lord has loved him and so he can wait on the Lord and he can trust him. And this is the kind of peace and the kind of rest that we can have in and through Jesus. 
It's the kind of peace and rest that is offered to us in Christ and that each day, each moment, each season as we face things that are stressful and hard, we can entrust ourselves to the Lord and hope in him. Let's enter into a time of prayer as we, as we do. Um, and this may, this may be a time where for many of us, it is good for us to confess the ways in which we have really been trying to control our lives and we have been trying to be our own gods and saviors. And perhaps also it would be so good for us to take all of our anxieties and worries and the things that make us restless and to imagine us in this picture going before God and giving them to him and being welcomed by his embrace and resting. Let's take a few moments to do that and then I'll, I'll lead us in prayer.